we go. Good morning. I'm happy to be here with you today and I'm looking forward to what the Lord has to say to all of us. All right, so do a quick review. Judges begins with the death of Joshua. In the two prologues, we learn that the tribes are beginning to take more of the land that Yahweh's given them for an inheritance. But we also learn that they fail to drive out the Canaanites completely. So consequently, they become unfaithful to Yahweh. He rebukes them, saying that he will no longer drive out the people before them, that they will remain a thorn in their sides, and the Canaanite gods will be a snare to them. Then begin the vicious cycles of the judges, 12 of them, by the way. Uh, the Israelites do evil in God's sight by worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. In time, God sends one of the surrounding peoples to oppress them. When they can bear it no more, they cry out to Yahweh, except during Samson's time, remember, he raises up a judge to rescue them. And just when we had thought it got to the lowest point with Samson, oh no, we get to chapter 17, the first of two epilogues. So I'm giving credit here to Barry Webb for the outline of my part one that you have there. The corruption, the, the depths of the canonization of Israel and this epilogue, we see the religious degeneration of the people. And then next week we'll see their, the moral de degeneration. So let's start. The corruption of an Israelite household. Let's read 17, first six, six verses. Uh, sorry, I'm reading from my NASB here, so it'll be a little different. Now, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So let's take a look. Micah is the short form of the name Mikayehu, who is like Yahweh. So who is like Yahweh stole silver from his own mother and only returned it after he overheard her uttering a curse upon the thief. So he tells her about it. She blesses him to reverse the curse. And then she says, I'm going to dedicate all, my, all this money to Yahweh. And so she takes 200 pieces. We're not actually sure if she takes it or if Micah takes it the 200 pieces to a silversmith for him to craft this idol. So just a little insert here. We are seeing here, the narrator is giving us hyperlinks back to the Torah. The, the first word used in the, in the passage is first found in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And it is found again in Deuteronomy 4 and 5 
a repetition of the Ten Commandments. The second term is a, the same term used for the golden calf in Exodus 20, and the combination of the two together is also used in Deuteronomy 27. Clear hyperlinks that the, the writer, the narrator is giving us back to the Torah. So then, who, who is like Yahweh puts idols in his own household shrine, and when it says here, the house of Micah, that is a, a framing device to the house of God in Shiloh in 1831. So it's another framing thing. House of Micah, house of God. He also adds an ephod, which is an idolatrous substitute like Gideon's for the ephod to be worn only by the Aaronic priests. And then he adds other idols to the shrine and ordains one of his sons to be his priest, a direct challenge to the exclusivity of the Aaronic priesthood. Y'all, there are so many things wrong with this picture. <laughs> it is obvious that this family, probably typical of many families in Israel, has no knowledge of the Torah and therefore do not know Yahweh truly. The narrator then places here his evaluation of the events, an opening inclusio bracket in 7-6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The ending bracket is the last verse of the book of Judges, when he repeats the exact same words. This is what human beings have been doing ever since the garden. An evil servant, rebellious servant, well, evil spiritual being, rebellious against God, comes to Eve, raises doubts in her mind about God's goodness. She looks at the fruit and sees that it's good and delightful and desirable to make one wise. So she took it for herself and shared it with her wimp husband who was standing there who did not remind her what God's word was. They did what was right in their own eyes and plunged their descendants into sin and death. One family is bad enough. Now we're going to look at the priesthood. Seven, verse seven. Now, there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite. And he was staying there. And the man departed from the city from Bethlehem and Judah to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. And the Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as priest. So now, we meet a young Levite who for some reason has been living in Bethlehem, which is not a Levitical city. By the way, I included in your packet a map, and it even has a key showing the Levitical cities, and you can see Bethlehem is not one. Neither is Micah's house in Ephraim. <laughs> he heads west 
to find a place for himself, rather than heading to Shiloh to work in the tabernacle, lo and behold, he comes to Micah's house, who is like Yahweh, in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah makes him an offer he can't refuse. He agrees to stay with Micah and be his personal priest for some nice benefits, replacing Micah's son, who is now out of a job. Micah, in turn, is certain that he will now be blessed by Yahweh because of his lucky charm. I mean his Levitical priest. <laughs> Barry Webb, one of the commentators I looked at, says this. Judges 17 is full of religious words, objects, activities, and persons, but none of it has been governed by respect for God's law or a desire to honor him as an end in itself. Rather, this has been has all been about people using religion to serve their own interests. A dark time. So as we move on now to chapter 18, we see this contagion of false religion now infecting another whole tribe. So we're not going to read 18 except look at the first verse, at least the first phrase. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Our narrator is repeating the first clause of that, of that phrase, that inclusio bracket. So after this reminder, here's what we learn. The tribe of Dan sends five valiant men from Zorah, which is Samson's hometown, up north to find a place for them to settle. They have been unable to secure their inheritance because of the Amorites, also known as the Philistines. When they stop to spend the night at Micah's place, they discover, much to their surprise, the Levite and ask him to inquire of God on their behalf. What is a Levite doing as somebody's personal priest? So they need to know, is our venture going to be successful or not? He blesses them with shalom and Yahweh's ambiguous approval. His eye is upon you. And they continue on their way. They travel up north, which you can also see on the map way up there. They travel up north to the city of Laish, a quiet and unsuspecting people, and decide this is where they want to live. Then they return to Zorah and report to their people that they should go and take the city of Laish. Are bells ringing in your head? Spies sent out to find a place to live and come back and make a good report? Okay. So 600 Danites set out to take Laish, but along the way, they stop at Micah's house. The five spies, knowing about Micah's shrine and Levite, stop in and steal the ephod, the idols, and the graven image. The Levite happens upon them. What are y'all doing? And they said, Shh, be quiet. Hey, is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to the priest to a tribe or to be a priest to a tribe in a family in Israel? This was yet another offer the young Levite could not refuse. So he leaves with all the idols and the Danites. When Micah discovers the theft, he chases after them with a posse. The Danites ask him why he has come against them, you know, what's the matter with him? And he answers, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? What is wrong with this picture? They tell him to shut up and go home or he'll be killed, and so he tucks his tail and returns home. They proceed to Laish, slaughter the peaceful, unsuspecting people, not giants, in the land. 
Then they set up the idols and install the priest, the Levite, as their, as their priest, who it turns out is a descendant of Moses. So, things did not end well for Micah, after all. And the Levites, who were supposed to be leading the people in the worship of Yahweh at the tabernacle in Shiloh, have become corrupt. Daryl Block, in his commentary, says this. The cult, that is, everything involved with the worship of Yahweh at the tabernacle, the cult is syncretistic, meaning mixing of proper worship and idolatry, basically. The priesthood is mercenary, and the devotees are evil. Instead of calling people to repentance, the professional spiritual leaders capitalize on the degeneracy of the times. What has gone wrong? How did things come to this point? Sin is obvious, but let's dig a little deeper. I posit two main reasons. The first one, the failure to obey the Shema. And two, the failure to do the Torah in the sight of the Canaanites. So let's look. Judges, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 6. We'll start there with the Shema. This is a place that you should actually know well. Four to nine. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That is far as we will go. Love God, the first and greatest commandments. They have failed here. Next, flip back to uh, four, a couple chapters. <clears throat> Starting at six. So keep them and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this is a great nation. Uh, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Uh, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God? whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that, his stat that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and make them known, but make them known to your sons and grandsons. They failed to do the Torah. There's hope, though. The ancient church put the book of Ruth next in order. It, it's not in the Hebrew order, but it's in the Christian, in the Christian Bible. Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David, who leads Israel faithfully, albeit not perfectly, in the worship of Yahweh, and whose son, Yeshua of Nazareth, is King of kings and Lord of lords. Praise his name. Well, Things aren't really much different today, are they? 
There are still idols everywhere. They may not always be a graven image or something carved, but we, there are places in the world that do have those, and maybe even in our country because the world is coming here. And even the church can be lured away into idolatry. This week I was listening to a podcast with my favorite seminary professor, Michael Goheen, and a question was asked him to um, share with some of the uh, idols that he's noticed in the Western culture, in America and Western culture. Goheen is, he lives part of the time in Canada, part of the time in U.S. He's Canadian by birth. So he listed these that I put here for you. Freedom, consumerism, political ideologies, sexuality, and technicism. Not physical idols, but systems of thought and feeling that the evil realm uses. And then human beings fall into their trap. Freedom is a good thing. In Christ, we've been set free. But we are not autonomous. So twisting freedom into autonomy, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, is idolatry. Consumerism. There's nothing wrong with having things, having our needs met, having extra things that we can uh, enjoy with friends and families. But when that is our driving goal, it becomes consumerism. And we are becoming idolatrous. Political ideologies. On the right, on the left. I'm reading with a group um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, uh, The Gulag Archipelago. I put a quote on, on uh, your page back, page two it is. The first sentence, ideology. This is what gives evil doing its long sought justification and gives the evil doer the, ne the necessary steadfastness and determination. Political ideas can be good or they can be twisted to do evil. Sexuality, that's just one of our widespread blowing up topics for this state. We encounter it almost every day. Sex is good. God created it for humans to enjoy, to know what union with him is like, to multiply and fill the earth. But when it is turned into something else, it is an idol. Technicism. Technology can be a good thing, a very good thing. It is great to have a cell phone to be able to call somebody when you need help on the side of the road or for your kids when they get into it. It's a great thing. But when it consumes your life, it becomes technicism and it is idolatrous. So how can even the church be complicit in this ugly situation? I again pose two parallel reasons to what happened to the Israelites. And there's a quote from, uh, on, again on page two that I heard Dr. Goheen say in this same uh, podcast, the Western church has singularly failed in its one major task and that is to pass along its foundation story to the next generation and bring it to bear, that is do it, on the contemporary issues of the day. He's quoting John Carroll, an agnostic Australian sociologist. 
So the church has failed, is failing to tell its foundational story well and to love God and neighbor. So to be faithful where the Israelites failed, we need to do, I suggest, three things. That's our part three. We need to tell the story in a faithful way. We need to increase our loving attachment to God. And we need to strengthen and shape our group identity according to this compelling story of the Bible. I'm giving these very practical reasons because this is who I am and this is where I am on my journey. So, the Bible tells the magnificent story of the kingdom of God and our part in it. Can you tell it in a compelling way so that the one you're speaking to can be turned from idolatry? Can you tell? I've given you some couple little things here. Uh, telling the stories is also on page two. This is great little website I learned about listening to uh, Marcus Warner. Uh, if you go to the site, you can actually see how the whole thing is filled out. Creation theology, I didn't include it all there, but then salvation theology, that's almost like the covenants. The co If you want to uh, talk according to the covenants, frame your, your discussion that way. And then the kingdom theology. That, so God is the creator, and then the kingdom theology is he's coming back to reestablish his kingdom. But then it's handy to have this little hand thing to help you trace. So there's an easy framework that you can use to make sure you know how to share the story. So the only thing is that just knowing all the right information isn't enough to transform our character. Since the Enlightenment, the discipleship, uh, that's about late 17th, late 18th century, like 100 or so years or more. The discipleship program of the church in the West has focused on information and reasoning, so-called left-brained activities, academics, behavior, church activity. But again, right knowledge, being discipled, making the right choices, church activity, being here whenever the doors are open. It's not enough to transform us, to conform us to the image of Christ. As it turns out, love is required for identity development, uh, identity development and character formation. That is the way God designed our brains. Obedience is rooted in love, and love is experienced in relationship. Love is the engine that runs our brains. Joy is the fuel the engine runs on. A non-idolatrous use of technology, brain scans, is helping neurobiologists understand how human beings mature. So Jim Wilder is a self-styled neurotheologian, and I'm gonna quote him on the top of your page Three. He says, attachment 
is the strongest force in the human brain. It is a life-giving forever bond with no mechanism in the brain to unglue us. If God has an enduring love for us that brings us good, the only force in the human brain that can understand such lasting kindness and care is the brain's attachment system. The way we attach to God is connected to how we attach to our first caregivers. Infants come out of the womb needing to interact with others. They're looking for someone who is looking for them, who is delighted to be with them. This is joy. Joyful interactions should lead to safe, secure attachments with caregivers. Unfortunately, because of sin and brokenness, this doesn't always happen. This will affect all our relationships. So I'm reading about all of this stuff because I have an insecure attachment to my family of origin. I was in abusive in an abusive first marriage and I've got issues. And so I am trying to figure all this out because poor Paul is the victim of my trauma. So I'm working on all this. Until we're about 12, our brain focuses on developing our self, our personhood, our identity. Then at that point, 12, puberty, middle school, then it switches to needing to know who our people are. This is our group identity. Our group shapes us as we continue to grow and mature. For us, this should be the church as well. So let's look at that second quote from Wilder, top of three. Our brains draw life from our strongest emotional attachments to grow our character and develop our identity. We, who we love shapes who we are. Character formation is the central task of the church. Our brains are designed to use our attachments to form our character. We should expect to find the concept of attachment all over scripture. Attachments are so indispensable to brain development that Jim set out to find them in the Bible. He found what he was seeking in the Hebrew word hesed. This is the word that gets translated in many different ways, mostly steadfast love or God's loving kindness, his faithful love. All right. So, point three, how do we, how do we work on shaping and strengthening that group identity? Uh, look down, we're going to skip to the uh, second to the last comments there, starting with if I am not. If I am not a part of a high joy Hesed community with a strong group identity, I will not know how to change my behavior. My own willpower will be insufficient to prevent me from acting in non-Christian ways. Our instantaneous reaction, this is a little bit farther along in, the, in that passage, our instantaneous reaction to life circumstances, some of which result in non-Christian behavior, can be transformed by having a joyful Hesed community that has a well-developed group identity based in the character of Jesus. This is how the Holy Spirit works most of the time. He doesn't zap us into maturity. 
He renews our mind by using ordinary means. Our relationships to our parents, our church, our friends change us, change our brains, our loves, our hearts. The ancient Israelites forgot who they were. A new humanity called out from among the pagans to be a blessing to the whole world. They neglected to pass along the story of their covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, in a compelling way that made him more beautiful than the idols and culture surrounding them. They didn't love him with all their being. But praise his name, he did not give up on them. His goodness and love continued to pursue them. And in the fullness of time, he took on flesh that he might live and die for them and us, destroying the works of that ancient serpent and the power of death, pardoning all their sin and our sin. We, the people of the new covenant in Jesus, have received the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us love and obey. One day, hopefully soon, real soon, he will return to set up his kingdom. Sin and brokenness and death will all be destroyed, never to enter again. Hallelujah. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So one last thing that I want to do at the very bottom of your page uh, three, I want you to recite with me. This is Trinity's mission and our core values, and we're going to state this together like this. We are people who... And then every time there's a period, we are people who, and then I, I stopped repeating it. So that's we're going to just say that all together, all right? Let's do that. We are people who embrace, embody, and extend the redemptive message of Jesus to the people and places of Fort Worth and beyond. We are people who worship God together through historic liturgy that is rich, accessible, and emotionally honest. We are people who strive to know and be known in our life together. We are people who engage in formative practices. We are people who extend the welcome of the gospel in word and deed. We are people who serve our city. That's who we are. That's our little trinity identity. Thank you. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful word to us, for the magnificence of this story that is truly more compelling than the stories we hear every day around us. Would you help us to faithfully tell it to those you've put in our circles. Would you show us ways that we individually can deepen our love for you, our attachment, attachment to you? And would you remind us, family of Trinity, Trinity family, to share this story together, to remind each other who we are so that when we get off track, 
and correction needs to be made, we can remind each other who we are so that your great name will be honored and praised here and in all the world. Would you be with these ladies as they now go to their groups? May their, their discussion be fruitful and their time edifying. Oh, we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.